Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's spring, and what better way to put a spring in your step than by buying some comfy knickers or pants? That is how it works, right? I mean, when I was a kid, if you bought new trainers and everyone said you'd be able to run faster, so I guess if you buy new pants, then you might be able to put a spring in your... Oh, no, bum. Wait, that's... Wait, okay, that's wrong. Yes, anyway, uh, while we all know the wonderful British boxers do an incredible range of things to sleep in, it's now nearly sunny outside again, you know, in that way where it's also a bit cold, but you're still going to need a new T-shirt, hoodie, or new pants to go and try it in before you then have to go back inside and get your jacket. And British boxers have a brilliant range of all of those things, as well as pyjamas that you're probably still going to need for work until at least 2023. British boxers are an independent, ethically excellent lot who make actually nice lounge and casual wear that you can wear inside or outside, but you know, with shoes on as well because you're sensible. Head to British-Boxers.com and use the code PARPOLBRO10 and you'll get 10% off whatever you order. You might accuse me of being in the pockets of Big Pyjama and I'd say no, actually I'll take a medium and my pockets have an old tissue in because that's tradition, it's just always there, I don't even know where it's come from, it's really strange, it's every pajama pocket it's always an old tissue how does he get there who's put it there no one knows Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that swaps sleaze for cheese, text leaks with um, mild cheek and corruption with an overwhelming desire to live in another country that isn't run by the worst people on the planet. I'm seeing and do Yeb and as Downing Street insists the Prime Minister, an inspiration for unmixed bowls of congealed custard that want to get rich, Boris Johnson, covered the number 10 flat renovation from his own pocket. We all know that's not true as he's never been able to keep his trousers on long enough to make use of them like that. It is a depressing situation when a leaked report states that the Prime Minister said he would rather see bodies piled high in their thousands than order a third lockdown, and our first thought as a country is not to assume it's inflammatory gossip, but more surprised that he managed not to say it during a press conference at 6pm on live TV. It might also be intrigue as to whether, by bodies piled high, he meant people dying from Covid or simply his wishes for the next sex party he attended at his pal and like someone took a biro to a picture of a gnome of Ginny Lebedev's castle. Or maybe even just by bodies piled high in their thousands, he meant the sheer amounts of dead cats that are thrown around in order to distract from the even worse stories than him wishing people were dead. In fact, there's been so many so-called dead cats under Johnson and his government that it's probably right to suspect that they are all in fact true and we just have to come to terms with the country being led by people so incompetent and selfish that they couldn't even care for a household pet without it going horribly wrong. 
Of course, Boris Johnson would say such a thing as saying that he'd rather see bodies piled high in their thousands in the same way that he called an effort to buy ventilators last year Operation Last Gasp, something that at the time we assumed was a tactless reference to people with COVID, but actually in hindsight could well have been about how he was handing out contracts like they were a bounty to take out Britain. You can also be certain that Boris Johnson did offer to fix the tax issue for the man who invented the bagless vacuum by simply looking in the mirror, James Dyson, so that he would return to the UK to make ventilators during the pandemic. I mean, in a time of dire need, why would you call in UK companies that already make ventilators and who pay their taxes when you could get a man whose entire modus operandi is to love Britain so much he treats it like one of his products would and sucks it dry before moving on? It's like dealing with an earthquake by ignoring all the local response teams and instead hiring some kleptomaniacs to help tidy up, insisting you'll turn a blind eye to their full backpacks at the end of the day. Dyson's ventilators weren't actually needed during the pandemic in the end, presumably because the last thing that would help someone who's unable to breathe is having the dust-covered dog-haired end of a Cyclone V10 shoved down their throat. But the government still says all their offers to allow Jimmy Dyson to only contribute to the country while automatically also taking away from it were simply doing everything they could to get the right equipment. But as always, the government's attitude to the task is that of someone who has absolutely no understanding of it in the first place, and they would definitely treat being asked to make a sandwich out of the bread and cheese on the table in front of them by calling their friends 700 miles away and waving a credit card at them to hire a team of chefs to make the ingredients from scratch so that none of it would arrive until everyone's already died of hunger. Plato said that similarity begats friendship, so it makes sense that Boris Johnson, with the moral code of a piranha on cocaine, wouldn't really have friends at all, but just a long list of people just as willing to stab his back as he theirs, like a big stabby Ouroboros. You're thinking, but Tin and snakes don't have arms, how could they hold knives? And I would say this is exactly the sort of thing the current government would fail to think through and pointlessly spend millions trying to do anyway. Boris Johnson blamed the Dyson text leaks on former special adviser Dominic Cummings, a man who's regularly exceeded our expectations by being able to talk instead of endlessly releasing a high-pitched whining noise as you'd assume he was only capable of. Reports say that Boris Johnson spoke to various newspaper editors one-to-one in order to, and I'm quoting here, finger Cummings directly, which I suppose when looking back at Johnson's history does explain why he gave Cummings several pay rises. This is what I mean about Johnson and his government's inability to understand consequences, though. As him accusing a man who's known for being as stable and reliable as a rope bridge in an Indiana Jones film of releasing leaked texts is only going to come back and bite him harder. In Cummings' case, probably literally as he foams from the mouth and shouts something about a moon base. So, the former special advisor wrote in his blog, presumably while hunched over, typing with one finger and all the fury of someone who posts comments under online articles, that it was sad to see the Prime Minister in his office fall so far below the standards of competence and integrity that the country deserves. Wow, that's like having a steaming cow pack call you a piece of shit. The rest of his blog included offers to reveal other texts that he does have access to and would happily leak, and that Cummings told Johnson his plans to have secret donors pay for the Downing Street flat renovations was unethical and illegal, which I suppose you'd think would mean he'd be up for it. There have been a lot of concerns about the number 10 flat renovations coming from donors, hoping that by paying to make sure Johnson has somewhere comfy to put his ass, they might well be allowed to skip tax when not providing ventilators. This, of course, would have implications of lobbying, tax evading issues and generally making us aware that there are people out there stupid enough to give thousands to the Prime Minister just so he can say the stains on his trousers are definitely from plastering works. The government is meant to publish the Register of Members' Interests twice a year, but hasn't since July in 2020. Maybe they think it's not worth it when most of the details are available by just looking at the Health Secretary's family tree. Following Dom's blog post, the report about the bodies piled high comment was given to the Daily Mail from an unnamed source, which as we all know by now is Dominic Cummings' middle name, as rich people always have loads of those. 
and this has kickstarted a queue of everyone that Johnson has shown loyalty and kindness to in the past, stepping up to reciprocate. First up, there's former Attorney General and haunted Sam the Eagle, Dominic Grieve, who said the Cummings accusations are an illustration of the chaos Johnson brings and called him a vacuum on integrity, which I'm certain is also a tagline for Dyson products. Johnny Mercer, with the appearance of a failed television chef, was sacked from his post as Veterans Minister, or as he says, was forced to resign because he was unhappy that changes to the Overseas Operations Bill meant it won't allow soldiers to get away with torture, genocide and crimes against humanity. Which I suppose does seem unfair when the British government are totally allowed to do all of those things themselves. One rule for them, yada yada yada. Mercer is a constant advocate for British soldiers to be allowed to get away with all sorts of terrible shit. You know, in the way that someone who's done three tours in Afghanistan definitely wouldn't want protections against some of the awful things they'd done coming out in public. After being discharged, Mercer said that Johnson's government were a cesspit and that they were the most distrustful, awful environment he'd ever worked in and he'd been in Afghanistan. So I suppose that explains why they thought he'd be an appropriate team member for quite so long. The government have wheeled out all their very best players to defend the Prime Minister, which of course means by their standards it's only the least appropriate MPs who've been doing the news rounds. International Trade Secretary and only person who's had an IQ test resign due to unfair treatment, Liz Truss, collapsed onto all the programmes giving answers like she'd had to rehearse them for days in order to remember how words work. She insisted that the Prime Minister had definitely played for the flat renovation from his own pocket, but doesn't say who put the money in there for him to take out, as he's only ever filled them with wank socks and baggies before. Cabinet Minister and most hilariously named Conservative since James Cleverley, Lord True, said the work had all been done by long-standing Downing Street contractors, probably because Johnson wouldn't let them sit on all the new sofas bought for him by pals. And Defence Secretary, a man who always appears to have the sheen of being covered in a light chip fat, Ben Wallace, said that the Prime Minister had complied with the rules but didn't say which ones and they could well be from corruption the board game. Wallace also said the reports in the Daily Mail that Johnson had made comments about bodies piled high were completely false. So that means a paper that lies reporting a man who lies saying a man who lies is lying has been called a liar by a government that's known for lying. If it wasn't so depressing, it'd at least be a fun riddle to try and work out exactly which one is telling the truth, with the sad answer being none of them and maybe we should emigrate now. As we know, of course, Johnson said those comments and the BBC and ITV have since confirmed, much like when he was Foreign Secretary, he said Libyan City Certe could be like Dubai if they just cleared away all the dead bodies, or how time and time again he's avoided meeting the bereaved families of those lost to Covid, but would meet pissed off football fans last week after the news of the European Super League, because there's only one sort of passing that he can be sympathetic to. This is the same European Super League that showed the government can intervene in corporate greed if they can be bothered and it doesn't involve any of their friends. Though it's since been revealed that originally number 10 were entirely on side with the elitist football grab until they realised none of the public were and decided this time they should play at home for the best results, despite not really having a loyalty to any team other than their own. Isn't this all just gossip and endless Westminster soap opera that's been said by guests on this show time and time again isn't the real politics that actually matters? Well, yes, but you can tell a lot about a person by the company they keep, and it seems with Johnson, all the company he keeps also thinks he's an absolutely lying prick. I have no care for Dominic Cummings, a morally bereft man who acts like a malnourished Begbie, and ultimately I'm hoping there's a way that both he and Johnson can lose from this. I mean, I'm really hoping it's Dominic Cummings' Darth Vader moment, and by that I mean that he too dies at the end. But if the Prime Minister's inability to have loyalty to anything other than his own genitals means that his downfall comes from within his circle of fuckery, then it's probably the sort of end that he actually deserves, second only to falling off a bridge he paid millions to fail to complete before landing in a ditch and dying. It also fits with everything that the government have been involved in over the pandemic and before. I mean, here's a quick list of the past week of things that you'll be massively unsurprised by. 
A fifth of the government COVID contracts have raised the red flag for corruption by Transparency International Limited. But I suppose for the Conservatives that's just more flags, so if they could find a way for it to raise statues too, they'd still think they were winning the culture war. The £2.6 million room for White House-style press conferences in Downing Street has now been scrapped after a total of four uses because it seems they misunderstood the word briefing. But hey, the Russian firm that built it will still have been paid, so it turns out we are giving more international aid than we thought. During a speech at US President and flop from Bing, Joe Biden's virtual climate summit, Boris Johnson rambled nonsensically about how tackling climate change is about growth and jobs, not expensive bunny hugging. I give it mere days before we find out that bunny hugger is the name of someone Johnson cheated on his wife with over a decade ago and then gave £200,000 of state funding to to start a cryptocurrency or something like that. When asked by HuffPost politics editor Paul War if after the Greensill lobbying and Johnson's relationship with Jennifer Arcuri, the Nolan principles of ethical standards expected of public office holders are still relevant, Boris Johnson just said yes and then immediately moved on. Maybe this is because he thought War was referring to Christopher Nolan, where all the principles are based on inception and the belief he can get away with anything if he insists it happened in a dream. So, yeah, it's pretty much now what we expect from a man who'd almost do better to say, yep, I did make that comment about bodies piled high, as we'd all be so staggered that he'd actually admitted to something we knew he'd definitely done. There might be an iota of respect restored from the pit it was long buried in. Boris Johnson doesn't need to admit to it, though, as the Conservatives will still poll highly, because the mentality is that of Boris Johnson's biographer, who says he thinks the Prime Minister may as well have made those comments, but they will strengthen his reputation as a man who talks as a man in the pub would. Yes, welcome to Britain, where we only vote in leaders with the same strength of character as Weird Steve, the smelly guy that sits in the dark corner drinking the strongest cider and shouting racist things and conspiracy theories before pissing himself and falling asleep. Ah, it makes you so proud. In other news, the outbreak of COVID in India is currently so severe that hospitals are running out of beds, all the while the Prime Minister and what-if gnomes were nationalist Narendra Modi and his government have been dealing with the crisis by blocking all criticism of them on social media, deciding it's best to starve critics of the oxygen of publicity and also actual oxygen. As India's coronavirus cases have reached record levels over five days now, the UK, EU and US are all sending aid, with Boris Johnson pledging to stand side by side with them. No, Johnson, you have to be at least two metres away. Have you learned nothing? And lastly, in the UK, a new TV advert is being rolled out to encourage the under-50s to have their vaccine because those selfish bastards have absolutely refused to get something that hasn't been at all available to them. The TV advert will say every vaccination gives us hope, so I'm worried now that everyone is going to want 10 of them each in order to beat the deficit. Oh, howdy, howdy, let's get rowdy. What's going on, Parpol Brods? Uh, you may have noticed, or maybe you didn't. You probably don't really care. I don't want to guess your levels of news alertness or botheredness. Um, but there were a number of news bits I didn't mention on this week's intro. Um, you might be shouting, where's the bit about Derek Chauvin being found guilty? Uh, and that's because I couldn't find anything to say about it other than, good, fuck him. Fucking deserves it. Which isn't really a joke, is it? So I didn't put it in. Um, there are also some really brilliant jokes on Twitter that I couldn't better, uh, including someone pointing out, extremely cool to be relieved that the man filmed in HD video murdering someone was found guilty of murder. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, the possibility that it might not be was so terrifyingly real. I haven't really got the brain power to work out how to make that absolute despair funny. But good, fuck that guy. Uh, I've not th- nothing on that, absolutely nothing on that. Nothing on Nazanin Zahari Ratcliffe facing yet another year in jail in Iran because uh, Boris Johnson continues to be a dickhead. Um, or all that much on India being absolutely, totally fucked. All of those stories are too awful. And I did try, but my brain cannot find a way to make them funny this week. So I am sorry, and you will have to wait for the tragedy plus time equation to kick in 
for any sort of decent response to those horrors. Um, I instead, instead of dwelling on uh, trying to find jokes for all the terrible things, I had a weekend of seeing actual friends again. Um, outside, obviously, in the sort of weather that makes you debate if renewed social interaction is actually worth catching pneumonia for. But I have to say it was. It was so uh, damn good to see pals. Um, it was a friend of mine's 40th birthday on Sunday and we all sat outside his flat and had some beers and ate some cake. And oh, it was just, it was amazing. And I appreciate how massively unappealing this may sound for some of you and it probably can sound massively unappealing for most of you but there was a moment where I sat with four very close friends and one of them realised that we've not seen each other to be able to discuss the season 2 finale of The Mandalorian and we all had a very postponed massive geek out about it together uh, like 40 year old men talking about Star Wars and it was it was weird to suddenly realise oh yeah that's what I've been missing being with other middle aged men that have absolutely refused to grow up oh, it was lovely it was absolutely joyous um, and as I said that might be massively unappealing uh, for some of you. You may have other things that you have missed discussing, but I have to say, it was a total fixer. Absolute fixer. Um, there's nothing much else to say this week, really. It's fuck all going on, is there, really? Uh, except, you know, there's obviously the usual thank yous uh, this week to Connell and Taz for their monthly Kofi donations, which is, that is hella kind of you. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, the usual, if you'd like to donate, skibbity dibbity do bloody bloody blah at kofi.com forward slash bro, blah, 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 patreon.com forward slash bro, thingamajigamy ACAR supporter site, why have your donations to your podcast decreased rapidly, Tiernan? No idea, mate. I'm definitely pushing it super hard on the podcast. Uh, and, of course, I'll just review, shout about it, get on with your life, eat a sandwich, I don't care. Um, that's it. That's that bit done. Let's crack on with this week's show, um, which is far more uh, enjoyable. Um, there is an interview with Rianne E. Jones, uh, author of Paint Your Town Red, A Guide to Community Wealth Building. And let me just say, um, I absolutely devoured this book uh, with my eyes, obviously, not mouth, wasn't that hungry. Um, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. I'm very excited for you to hear all about it. And then go and just listen to this interview, then go and buy it and read it, seriously, and then do things. And let's, uh, let's genuinely uh, take back control in a proper way. I suppose. Um, look, I'm not going to read the whole book to you uh, on this episode. That would be excessive, and I think the publishers would get sad. So instead, uh, Rian talks to me all about it. Um, in the middle, there is a little guide to the May the 6th elections, for they be approaching. <laughs> According to Boris Johnson, Brexit was all about taking back control and voting for the Conservatives to win the 2019 election was in order to level up Britain. But the only way either of those were true is if this country is a computer game and you've been given a faulty joypad and sent straight to where things get immeasurably harder and you've none of the power-ups to survive it. So just keep dying. Of course, if you are a Conservative voter or more accurately donor, then indeed you have taken back control of things you shouldn't really be allowed control of in the first place. And you've leveled up from being a company that has been largely defunct for years to become a specialist in something like PPE procurement. So I guess it did ring true for some. But for many others, including myself, it's easy to feel absolutely powerless about making political change happen, especially in an era where few protests make a dent and they're going to be made illegal anyway, the government are doing what they like with zero accountability, and the opposition's entire strategy seems to be based on hoping if they wait around long enough, then eventually, eventually they might get a turn once everyone else gets bored. Or dies. But what if, and bear with me on this, no, the other type of bearing with me, come on, what if politics isn't actually dependent on everything happening at a national level and there's a way that your local area, yes yours, could shun the standard how-to of dealing with 10 years of austerity by selling off every scrap of public land left and reducing social care to one person who texts, are you okay, hun, to every resident twice a year? Well, 
If you live in Preston, you're already miles ahead of the game on this, as thanks to the council's efforts to democratise wealth at a local level, the city has actually, properly, genuinely taken back control. And if you like that chat, levelled up to be voted the best place to work and live in the North East for four years in a row. Which is pretty amazing for a place that previously Google Autocomplete would finish the sentence Preston is with a dump. No, let's be fair, all it takes is inventive foresight and an ability to imagine what changes could happen to make a dump into something rather magical. Yes, I do have to watch Junk Rescue on CBeebies with my daughter, and no, Preston isn't just full of sock puppets with hair and guitars made out of cereal boxes, as that wouldn't actually be levelling up, would it? Unless she previously only had a guitar made out of a matchbox, I suppose. I guess it's all relative, isn't it? Sorry, what I mean is that the Preston model has inspired similar thinking all over the UK, and it does make you wonder, if the national government are just going to ruin everything, then maybe the trick is to keep things local. Except for yoghurts, obviously, as the full-fat ones are much nicer. Fact. This week I spoke to Rian E. Jones, a journalist and author who, along with Preston Council leader Matthew Brown, has written a book all about how people, i.e. you and your chums, can transform society in a clear, actually doable way. Paint Your Town Red details not just what Preston have managed to do, but how other areas like the Welsh Valleys have followed in its footsteps, and most importantly, how you and your area can start with community wealth building, cooperatives, credit unions and land stewardship projects. Or to put it in simpler terms, lots of things that mean where you live can stop being, as Google might rudely put it, a dump. The book isn't out till May the 11th, but Rian kindly agreed to tell me all about it. I also had a chance to read it, and I can honestly say, as I mentioned earlier on the show, it's one of the most inspiring reads on potential ways around the absolute shit show the UK is currently in. So I asked Rian all about just what the Preston model is, if there's any way this can mean we just don't need the government anymore, as God, wouldn't that be nice, what we can do with the local elections coming up, and why locale yoghurts are the worst. OK, not the last one, that is still just a terrible wordplay gag. I hope you enjoy and feel very motivated as a result. Here is Rian. Um, Rian, I, I have been absolutely uh, just inspired by your book. It is. It feels like a tonic to not just a lot of issues that people are very frustrated with right now in terms of uh, globalisation and feeling out of control of their area, but also, especially in a time where I don't think we can rely on the current government to do anything <laughs> of yeah, uh, you know, to, to solve a number of issues. And and reading your book just seemed very practical and very clear and as i said sort of just inspiring in terms of these are actual tangible things that we could do in our own local areas to improve things um now i've got hundreds of questions for you about it um but i thought if we just start for the listeners um because i've heard about preston and and i've read things about it adita chakravarti sort of written about it a few times in the guardian but several people i've spoken to since reading your book this week have already said oh i had no idea so if we start from the beginning and maybe if you could just tell me what the Preston model is? Sure. Um, well, first of all, the Preston model draws on um, the Cleveland model. So things are going to be more, they'll become more complicated before <laughs> they come clearer, I'm afraid. Um, so the, the Cleveland system was set up in the city of Cleveland in the US. Um, Cleveland's a post-industrial area of the country. It was also facing uh, problems like unemployment, um, lack of investment, capital flight, in the same way that many cities and towns in the UK are. Um, so the work that was done there um, to improve the local economy um, was done by a group called the Democracy Collaborative, and they came up with the name Community Wealth Building for the project that they were doing. Um, some of the guys behind the Cleveland model then travelled to Manchester in 2010, I think, or around then, um, to speak at a event about co-ops. Um, and in, in the audience there was uh, Matthew Brown, who was um, just a sort of a low-level councillor 
in Preston at the time. Um, so his attention was really caught by that. He started talking to these guys and they decided to implement a version or a, an adaptation of this model in Preston. So to get to answering your question, um, the way community wealth building has been applied um, both in Cleveland and in Preston is all about shifting the spending patterns of local um, institutions, local employers, so that it stays within the local area and it recirculates there instead of flowing out of the area to multinational corporations or private developers who don't put anything back into the local economy. Um, the way that Preston Council has done this is to identify what are called anchor, anchor institutions. Um, these are local institutions with significant spending power, like hospitals, schools, universities. And um, these anchor institutions are asked to redirect their spending strategy towards local suppliers. Um, so when they are putting out contracts for um, supplies, um, anything really from like catering contracts down to supplying printers or supplying stationery, um, all the sort of mundane things that make these um, institutions run. Um, they open this bidding process up to local suppliers um, so, for example, contracts, this is one thing that happened in Preston, contracts for local school dinners um, went out to local farmers and caterers to supply rather than like massive multinational catering corporations that are based outside Preston or in some cases outside the UK. Um, and similarly, local building projects were given um, to local firms rather than massive private developers. Um, so what this does is to keep more money within the local economy. Uh, it helps to stabilise local supply chains if they know where their business is coming from. Um, and when more people are given jobs and taken on by these local businesses, then they have more money to spend in the local area. So this is all basically common sense and, it, and it's not particularly radical. I think things like buying local have been around for ages. But um, the wider and perhaps more transformative potential in some of this is the idea, um, which is being tried in Preston, of um, stipulating in the contracts that are given to local suppliers that these suppliers should be hiring local workers, they should be targeting um, their recruitment at you know, more deprived areas of Preston, um, they should be paying a living wage, um, ensuring trade unions are involved in uh, their workforce. If um, suppliers are given a contract to build like a local housing development, then there needs to be a proportion of affordable housing that they build in. Um, so there's all these stipulations and also environmental considerations like using ethically sourced materials, uh, renewable energy sources. Um, plus, this is a, a slightly more, perhaps more, more radical part of it. Um, if there are gaps in the supply chain um, where no, no local suppliers exist, to fill the gap, then the, the strategy is to help people set up cooperative businesses so they can fill that gap by themselves. And this was done um, in Cleveland very successfully. I think one of, one of the co-ops there ended up um, winning a supply contract from um, Sodexo, which is a massive multinational, um, but they proved that they could do it um, cheaper and more effectively. Um, so there's all things like this that, uh, that tie in to the strategy um, through which it's possible to create a much more balanced and sustainable local economy. So uh, that's it in a nutshell. And and it's done. Preston's done really well out of this. I mean, you know, you, you sort of as 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 a city, they've uh, sort of got up in kind of uh, 
places to kind of live and work in in terms you know in the UK haven't they and just as a city it's really helped their economy and uh, issues mm-hmm. with unemployment and a number of other things and is, has that been a, a really noticeable because when did they start doing this was it 2012 was that right um yes I mean the I think the the initial idea for um d- doing something new was sort of 2011 onwards but 2012 I think was when things started to definitely shift in favor of you know something that was definitively like a, another another model an alternative way um of doing things but it's, it's definitely what I mean is there are some actual visible benefits now that we're looking at just sort of nine years later that people are noticing yeah. and it, and it's directly because of this change in how they operate yeah I mean it's it's hard to to quantify um things like this sometimes because there are um you know there are more jobs uh, people are paying uh living wages at, at the the very least if not higher um but there's also from talking to people in Preston there is um developing just a sense of um of well-being or just of, of pride in the local area which has been missing and I, I think has been missing from loads of um both cities and small towns um for ages um and that that sort of pride comes from this idea that you have some kind of personal investment in your surroundings and you're getting more out of it than uh, than you previously were that sounds so nice that sounds wonderful it's um i mean it, it seems like a really silly question i suppose because i mean like you say you know the, the things like getting local farmers to provide for local schools is it, it seems like such a simple idea when you say it out loud and and as you talk in the book progressive procurement where everything mm. you know all the contracts have to fulfill environmental things it's all long term the long term planning that we wish and a, a dream <laughs> you know institutions w- have, w- would have been doing for a long time and i think is often missed in a lot of short term policies that we see in in politics uh, in in nation national mm. politics um, why, and I, I probably sort of showing my ignorance here, but it feels like it's only very recently that we're seeing this happen. Because I know you mentioned a number of examples in the book of places that have um, taken inspiration from Preston. Obviously, Preston took it from Cleveland. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these feel like really obvious things to do to uh, to make an area better and, and things more sustainable. Why is there a sudden uh, change to this recently? What's happened to kind of kickstart this movement? Um, as you say, like the basic ideas behind these strategies have been around uh, for ages, often in you know quite radical forms, like the the Paris Commune, uh, which is 150 years ago. But that was that was also um, based around really local democratic decision making. Um, and there's there's been various plans for worker ownership in this country. From um, in 1912, there was um, a plan put together by some Welsh uh, coal miners um, for workers ownership. Of the coal mines, which would have contrasted both with um, private ownership and with state ownership through nationalisations, so that was a very localist um, kind of anarchist or a syndicalist model, and that was also taken up in uh, 1976 with the Lucas Plan, which was a similar thing by a group of um, Lucas Aerospace workers. Um, and as you say, outside um, the UK, there are places. I mean, um, the Cleveland model itself drew on um, what's been done in a place called Mondragon if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, in the Basque country, um, where they've, they've had worker ownership and sort of cooperatively owned and run um, industries for uh, several decades. Um, so all of these, these things have been sort of ticking along in the background as alternative ways um, of, of living and of structuring your economy, I think. Um, it's now becoming a practical option because 
Um, I mean, let's, let's cut to the chase. I think it's because of the um, the collapse of a functioning liberal capitalism in the past um, past few decades, and, and a, a widespread loss of faith in it as well among people themselves. Um, I, I say right at the start of the book, actually, that even um, government officials and civil servants and economists themselves are starting to somewhat sheepishly admit that um, you know the free market experiment of the past forty years has run its course, and it's very clearly got us into disaster after disaster has led to huge regional inequalities, structural unemployment, um, little long-term investment, uh, as, as you're saying. Um, and right now, we, it's really obvious that only a few at the top are still able to benefit from the current system, and that's at the expense of everyone else. Um, I think that's, that's becoming increasingly obvious, particularly when you look at the current government after sort of having imposed austerity for 10 years and arguing that that was a necessity. Uh, now they're chucking money around, they're handing public money to their mates um, for um, contracts for track and trace and things like that, which don't even work. So I, I think central government is currently feels almost comically like corrupt and, and <laughs> yeah. if it's not corrupt, yeah. it's powerless, but at any rate, it, it uh, feels very removed from people's lives, um, which I, I think that is a relatively recent thing. Um, we saw people respond um, to the, the financial crash of 2008, I think, in, in a way that signified this through things like the Occupy movement um, or later on, like the, the Yellow Vest movement in France. Um, these movements were quite, uh, quite chaotic and, and quite sort of contradictory often, but they also very obviously signified that people were looking for a different way of doing things. Um, I, I think people uh, realising uh, how urgent the threat of climate change is as well as, as made all of this more urgent. Um, and people are looking for new ideas, basically, because the old ones are so clearly not working anymore. Um, I mean, in Preston, the model, the, the sort of the, the trigger for adopting the model was that previous models of uh, outsourcing and inward investment had conclusively failed. There was meant to be um, a development called the Tithe Barn, which is going to be like a huge leisure and uh, and commercial complex. Um, the people who were meant to develop that were, were multinational private developers. Um, they got cold feet after the crash of 2008 and pulled out. Um, so something that had been talked about for years and people had sort of hung all their hopes on this as a way of regenerating the area, suddenly that wasn't an option anymore. So, um, yeah, so Preston was forced to think, OK, well, what else can we do? OK, let's look at our own resources. Um, so things like that. I think that the very visible failure of old ways of working um, means that new ideas are not only just possible, but they're often the last remaining option. Like they, they often doesn't feel like it feels like we, we've tried everything else. So why not? Uh, why not give something more radical a go? Do, do you think the pandemic's kind of exacerbated or at least accelerated the need for that? Because it really feels not only with, as you say, the, the, the government being, uh, you know, horrifically corrupt and, and, and outsourcing everything to people that have got no experience in companies, no experience in, in doing the thing that we so desperately needed, such as ventilators or PPE. Not just that, but also the fact that we suddenly became a lot more local and, and there were mutual aid groups and we, we were suddenly reliant on a much smaller area around us. Mm. Do you think that's uh, created even more of a want and a, and a need for it? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I was really um, fascinated to see the the surge in um, sp really spontaneous mutual aid that happened at the start of the pandemic. And um, before, I, th I think we were almost kind of expecting that we we couldn't rely on central government to do anything. Like as it turned out, they did they did do some things. But at the very start, it, it was a real um, 
galvanizing of people saying, right, okay, what can we do? Um, and, it, and it seemed very obvious to sort of band into neighborhood groups to identify, you know, neighbors who were vulnerable or elderly, people who would, would need help um, with shopping and that kind of thing. It all, it felt very natural and organic. So that was, that was actually a really interesting experience um, for a different way of doing things. Um, I think that energy dissipated fairly quickly, but it shows, um, you know, people, people can be trusted to know what to do in a situation like that then, you know, but they obviously need resources um, and sort of organization and, uh, and support with it as well. Um, I think, I mean, the, the main thing the pandemic has done, I think, is, is to show that things, a lot of these previous conditions and certainties aren't set in stone. Like the government can give money out if it wants to, you know, the state can intervene in the economy. We were told for ages that this, this simply wasn't an option, but, you know, of course it is, it's a political choice. Um, so yeah, that's, that's been useful. Um, I'm not, I, I think it, I mean, it could go one of two ways, really. Like, there's definitely an opportunity for change. But, um, you know, if people are still feeling powerless and vulnerable, they may end up with a desire for greater state intervention and, and protectionism and things like closing the borders and, and this kind of thing. Um, but it could go the other way. So it all depends on how these arguments for progressive, inclusive localism are made. Um, I mean, you, for one thing, you're right that working life has changed massively and the fact that more people are working from home I've seen this myself there's, there's much greater involvement in an investment in where you live um, rather than where you work something as simple as um, you know getting your lunch from a local cafe or a, or a shop rather than grabbing something from Pret as you're sort of dashing through um, King's Cross station and that kind of thing um, so if that change in working culture carries on then obviously that will involve um, a greater concentration on local businesses community spaces for socializing and leisure and that although again I think that's something we will have to do that for ourselves like I, I don't really think the government is uh, is intent on on rebuilding um with an eye to this like I, I think they well I'm, I'm not sure how they will rebuild but I, I don't think it will be with any intent attention to progressive localism yeah I, I think when reading your book I was sort of aware of there's been lots of articles and, and sort of uh, things on various news shows about the, the idea of the 15 minute city and there's been a lot of that lately but it it, it I, so, I suppose I don't have faith that that uh, that that would all be in a kind of progressive and and localized way and it would still involve a lot of change shops and I think again reading the book it seems like there's a really lovely way of having a 15 minute city that's got a lot more involvement of the people that uh, are within mm. it um I mean, one, one of the things that really uh because as I said, I found the book very inspiring, and I think one of the bits that I particularly liked, which is is perhaps not not a great indication of, of me and the effort that I could put in, but you talk about getting people involved, and you, you say you know say that it's very important um, that not that, that people have to understand they don't need to give up their whole times and their whole lives um, mm. in order to be part of it, and it's useful to know how and when to get other people involved, and I think that really, especially a parent of a toddler, that really rung it <laughs> true with me. Where I'm thinking, I'm always exhausted. I don't know what I can do to kind of be involved in this. But what what are the what are the main issues in kind of getting people on board with this? What are the the obstacles in getting people to join this? Um, and I, I should say, I don't want to ruin anything in your book. Your book's got very brilliant step-by-step guide into how to start this. But, you know, I think there there are there are obvious start points that, that um, you know, to, to get people on board. And I just wonder what, what they would be. Um, I mean, I, I think you identify a, a really important obstacle, which is that people are busy and exhausted um, and have a huge amount of commitments um, in their lives, whether that's work um, or so, so caring responsibilities, looking after kids, looking after parents. Um, 
and and yeah, obviously, like domestic lives take up a huge amount of time as well. So I think it's important just to um, to remember that and like not expect not not expect too much from people, and maybe think about the traditional ways um, that party politics is done. Say, and I've been in I've been in and out of um, the Labour Party for about twenty years, and meetings are always on um, you know a weekday evening. Um, you know, is is that is that good for people who might need childcare? You know, is that that they're always you know are, are they inaccessible places that that everyone can get to? Um, sometimes they're in pubs, you know, and that's if if someone doesn't want to drink in a a pub environment, then what does um, is that accessible for them? Um, so th- there's all kinds of considerations um, that that I think would need to be taken into account. I mean, I, I think in terms of um, just the whole, um, I'm thinking about local government as, as a whole. Like, I think one big issue in this country is that, um, number one, local government is increasingly powerless, um, which largely, you know, isn't isn't their fault. It's a result of central government being hostile to devolving power and a sort of cut the budgets of local authorities, um, sort of push the responsibility for implementing austerity and council tax rises onto local councils. Um, But number two, I think councils themselves um, often just seem content to manage decline. Um, And that they're often, they're not immune to things like cronyism either, or or sort of um, self-aggrandizing kind of local politics that doesn't really involve the community. It sort of positions them as a a figurehead. So I, I think, first of all, there needs to be something of a cultural change in how we think about local politics and local democracy, um, particularly if you're looking at Preston as a model, like that did require cultural change within the council itself. And at a very basic level, you have to just inform people about what options are there and what political choices exist. Um, I go into this a bit in the book, but when councils have done things like um, participatory budgeting schemes, um, that's been really effective. And that, again, is, is really basic. It's just um, like a day out or an evening out where local people come along to an open forum um, and they decide how to spend a proportion of the council's budget, um, whether that goes on like street lighting or street cleaning um, or is spent on local hospitals or local schools. Um, again, like it, it's a, a kind of direct democracy that sounds really obvious, but it doesn't often happen. Um, and through things like this, just pr- presenting and exploring where where your money goes, you know, you pay, you know, or you, you may know you pay a certain amount of council tax. What's done with that? You know, if you, if you can actually see how it feeds into your local environment um, and why and who makes those decisions, I mean that is um, that, that's just an incredibly fundamental way of democratizing um, this country, I think, and, and improving, um, I suppose, citizenship is the um, the term for it, or just sort of civic mindedness. Um, and also, like from the from the council side, it makes spending a lot more effective. Um, if you're taking your cue from people in the community about what they need, what their priorities are, um, instead of taking decisions for them. Um, so that's that's a few things. I think on a, uh, I'll just sort of finish on on this on a fundamental level. It's important to just combat the amount of scepticism that often exists um, towards like change of any any sort of optimistic or progressive change um, and often that exists for very good reason because there's, there's been you know decades of regeneration schemes and redevelopment schemes um, that have gone nowhere and they've, they've often delivered a lot of consultation so there's a lot of like 
getting people into focus groups and saying, you know, how, how would you like your city to look? Um, and then nothing comes of it. There's, there's a lot of talking up of these developments and then either they never actually happen or they are um, built with no way of locals being able to live there. Um, they just sort of aid in, in gentrification and people get priced out or, um, or socially excluded from the area. So when you talk about, you know, or the Preston model is going to deliver great progressive change, people very rightly think, you know, we, we've heard all this before, you know, and nothing, nothing came of it. Um, so one, again, an example in, in the book, um, which isn't strictly sort of community wealth building, it's a stewardship project um, in the South Wales Valleys, which is where I'm from. So I found it uh, very exciting. Um, and they, um, ha having done a lot of consultations and encountered a lot of scepticism, um, they took the people involved on a visit to Scotland where there was like a working community farm kind that they they wanted to attempt okay so here we have a concrete example rather than us all sitting around in a room in a leisure center or above a pub talking endlessly about it like you here is it existing in real life great so we can have a go ourselves um so people want to see results and not just be given promises i think is the bottom line and the more of that they get then the more they will invest themselves, whether that's of their time or their ideas or their energy. Because if you if you if you produce results, um, then I think people are way more likely to put something of themselves in. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And we'll be back with Rian in a minute, but first... I don't know if you know, but there's a whole heap of elections going on next week, all on May the 6th, which also happens to be International No Diet Day, but that doesn't mean you should vote for a cheat day with it. That doesn't quite work. Anyway, there will be cheats across the spectrum of places you can vote, from the 25 candidates running for Welsh Assembly seats, even though they don't actually live in Wales and couldn't vote for themselves, to the series of disgruntled divorced dads trying to become London mayor in the hope it might mean someone loves them again. There's also some very good people running, and of course, whatever you might think, these elections will make a difference of sorts, even if it'll just give Lawrence Fox something else to cry about, leaving him even less time to tweet bollocks, which would be to the benefit of us all. So, I don't know how useful this is, but here's a little rundown of all the different elections that are going to be happening. 
First up is the Scottish Parliament elections for MSP seats. All 129 seats are up for grabs, and right now it's looking like SNP are going to get a majority. What? No way! Yeah, I know, right? Who could have guessed? Oh, wait, everyone. Labour are in second place, Conservatives third because some English people moved to Scotland and live there now, and then Greens, Lib Dems and right in the dregs of popularity are all the parties that look like they thrive there. Rejected Potato, Alex Salmon's Alba Party, Reform UK, which was formerly the Brexit Party, and Loud Vol, George Galloway's All for Unity Party, which seems to be named for its aims to bring together some of the worst people possible. And then somehow below them, if there is such a pace without falling out of the other side of the earth, are UKIP, yes, still, no, I have no idea how either, the Scottish Libertarian Party, who should be very happy if people do what they want and not vote for them, and abolish the Scottish Parliament, who, yeah, well, are obviously running out of self-loathing. The elections for MSP works with both the first-past-the-post and proportional representation system. So each constituency votes for an MSP who will win via first-past-the-post and then votes for an additional seven MSPs using the additional member system, which, yes, does sound like someone has an extra penis. That's probably the all-for-unity party there. They've got several. But that system means that every vote counts and you can vote both tactically and for smaller parties that you might actually like. I'm not going to go into what each and every party says they're standing for, as, look, seriously, we haven't got all the time in the world and it's pretty easy to find online. But obviously, uh, one is the stars of Scottish independence, which the SNP, Greens and Albert are for, and pretty much everyone else isn't, because if there was a border between Scotland and England, it would make it much harder for their lobbyists to travel over. Climate change has come up in the debates too, but for voters, healthcare is the main concern, followed by employment and welfare, then education, Brexit, and then independence and climate change, and despite a current crisis in rent rises, housing is absolutely last. SNP have been the largest party in Scottish Parliament since 2007 and it looks like this time round they're going to increase their seats for Holyrood even more than back in 2011. So voters have problems with how things have been running so far, they obviously think it's someone else's fault or that other parties would be even worse. Which I mean, look at Douglas Ross with his wind-blasted pub face, they're probably right. Next is the Senate, formerly the Welsh Assembly elections, and there are 60 seats up for grabs here. It's currently looking like Labour will keep their majority with 40% in the polls, but the Welsh Conservatives have a nine-point poll boost in second because obviously loads of people haven't got a clue about history, followed by Plaid Gymru and the Lib Dems. Again, UKIP are somehow still clinging on, so I suppose if they'd left they'd be immigrants and have to hate themselves. And then running in some regions are the Greens, Reform fucking UK, the Welsh Independence Party's Propel and Glad, the Freedom Alliance, whoever the fuck they are, and the Abolish the Welsh Assembly Party because I suppose you have to have a hobby don't you? And finally on regional ballots only, the Communist Party of Britain the Trade Union Party TUSC Wales and the Welsh Christian Party who based on their values don't seem to be all that bothered about the Christian or Welsh bits of their name but what is a regional ballot only? Well, very good question, me. Every voter in Wales has two votes. One of them is a vote for the Senate member for the constituency, which is a first-past-the-post system. And then, like Scotland, the second vote is proportional representation for regional seats, and some candidates are running for both because, goddamn, it's allowed. This is the first vote 16- and 17-year-olds can take part in, and so they bloody well should. And the biggest issue, according to polls amongst voters, is the economy post-Brexit and Covid. And supposedly 35% of Welsh people support independence, but only 19% are saying they'll vote for pro-independence parties. So, so probably not much is going to change, except that with most UKIP voters now going Tory, it seems, they'll do better this time around as Neil Hamilton and his crew wither away, which again, I suppose is no different to how he normally looks really, really hope Neil Hamilton loses his seat and they hand him the results in a brown envelope under the table. There are 25 candidates who don't even live in Wales, with 23 of them in England, one in Scotland and one in the Isle of Man, so you should probably check who you're voting for as if they don't even know the area, it's questionable how much they'll want to do for it, let alone how often they'll be around to complain to. 
Three of them are Conservative candidates, three are UKIP, five are Freedom Alliance, five Reform UK, one's a Lib Dem, two are from Abolish the Welsh Assembly, because of course they are, one's for the Trade Union and Socialist Coalition, and most curiously, three of the candidates who don't even live in Wales are glad candidates who want Welsh independence. Well, I suppose nothing could be more independent than them leaving the country to do its own thing, I guess. I guess. Elections for 143 English local councils are also happening. That's around 5,000 seats. And if you listen to this week's interview, you'll hear just how important those votes are. Currently, 54 of those councils are held by Labour, 47 by Conservatives, 6 by Lib Dems, 33 have no overall control, and 3 are brand shiny new councils. So they get to see all the excitement of how awful the people in their area are. This is straight up first past the post electing, but with every council ward having several seats, voters get a vote per seat. So that might mean one vote, or if you're in a larger ward, several. So kind of up to you how you play your crosses. There are shitloads of parties running, uh, aside from the obvious, and plenty of brilliant independent candidates too, such as shout out to Ashley Baxter in Market Deeping, who is a pod listener uh, of this show and thoroughly excellent man keeping the local Conservatives at bay. So if you're around there, definitely vote for him. Uh, There's also 13 mayoral seats up for election, including combined authority mayors who are big-time mayors of all the councils in the region, like in Manchester, Liverpool and Cambridgeshire, and single authority mayors who sound a bit more lonely, but they actually have a nice time in charge of just one city council. And, of course, the London mayoral election is happening, even though alternate universe Martin Freeman, Sadiq Khan, is very likely to win again, as his main competition is idiot Martian manhunter Sean Bailey, who is quite easily one of the stupidest people ever to run for office, having spent vast amounts of his campaign in areas where people can't actually vote for him and seeming to be mainly keen to get rid of cycle lanes lie about things and steal the Sillet Bang logo for his own seemingly unaware that he's more likely to be wiped off the electoral map more quickly than anyone else saying that uh, Sean Bailey has still got 28% of the polls at the Mo, which is bizarre and clearly down to the suburbs it's always the fucking suburbs the Lib Dem candidate Louisa Porritt is third then Sean Bailey for Greens then two YouTubers one who does prank videos and one who does parodies because let's face it if Sean Bailey can run they may as well and it is 2021. Then a whole heap of weird red-faced men and Count Binface is currently beating attention-seeking cheese twist Lauren Fox. Oh, it's so fucking weird. It's, it's all so fucking weird. There's 39 police and crime commissioner positions going to, which after the last year seems like a more important election than ever before. And of course, lastly, but no means leastly, there's the Hartlepool by-election following the resignation of Roland Rat impersonator and MP Mike Hill. Labour are hoping to retain the seat, which they want to do by parachuting in Paul Williams, a man who lost an election away down the road in Stoke, was pro-Remain, which Hartlepool was definitely not, and gets paid by the Saudi Arabian government to say they're progressive, which is, I mean, it's just amazing. So, the Conservatives are currently looking likely to win, which will be the first time in forever for that area, and will increase the Tories' already dangerous parliamentary majority. Hooray! And in third place, beating the Greens, Lib Dems and Reform UK, are the Northern Independence Party, who are putting forward a former Labour candidate and former teacher, Thelma Walker, and have a genuinely exciting progressive manifesto, and seem to be attracting the youth vote that have abandoned Labour as a result. Also, their online meme game is amazing. If you are voting in that area and want to vote for the Northern Independence Party, Walker is having to run as an independent candidate due to the NIPs failing to register with the Electoral Commission before the deadline. Um, and also, it's worth saying that the Monster Raving Looney Party are putting forward their candidate, the Incredible Flying Brick, which is always just perfect. And if you do want to build back better, then they're probably the best person to go for. Although maybe the Flying Brick isn't that helpful for a stable building. I don't really know. So that's all of it. Uh, I didn't want to patronise you in previous episodes telling you to register to vote because I assume if you listen to this, you already have done. But if you have done, then definitely do vote and vote for who you believe in too, uh, which is why I'm putting my vote in for Odin the Allfather. And now, back to Rio. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's it's, it's there was a uh, I don't know if you saw that it was the YouGov survey I think the other week where the public just have a massive distrust of the public and uh, and I think that stems from uh, years and years of like you say things not happening or things not happening with. Uh, you know, uh, the public's own input about how they, you know, it's what mm. we've had years of nimby's nimbyism, haven't we, of, of not wanting things developed, probably because they assume that it will not be yeah, good yeah. or it won't take their concerns into consideration. Um, it's fascinating you say about the, you know, lack of understanding of, of local government as well. Because I think I'm always quite shocked at how few people know how councils run or what's involved, or and and then all the, the I mean, which I'm always uh, foggy on as well. The differences between parish and borough and mm. local, and and there's so many levels to it, and the, and there's never really. Um, I took part in an event in, in Hartford Council, which was educating young people about local councils and how to, and, and that very rarely do places do that and say to schools, this is what the councils do. This is what the mm. government do. This is how it works. This is who's involved. And it's it's so um, very important. And I wondered if, if part of it as well is also just, um, you know, which again, you talk about in the, in the book about how you get investment and how you finance this sort of thing. But that seems like such a big thing that's way above many people's heads to suddenly say, well, we'd love to have this new park. We'd love to have this new leisure facility. But how on earth do you get the money mm. together to to do that? And so where do you even begin with, with something like that? I mean, this is um, I did uh, a lot of research into um, the, the, the ins and outs of like local councils for, for the book, which was, um, you know, so so destroying in some ways. But also, like, <laughs> I, felt like, I felt like I'd really sort of gained a new skill or I'd, I like, leveled up. But now I now I have some sort of local <laughs> government uh, power. Um, yeah. And it is incredibly complicated. And I think I mean, the, the main thing to do, I, I think, is just to. Um, just get just make, make that leap of faith um when when you think to yourself oh this isn't for me you know I, I I can't get involved or I've got nothing to offer or I wouldn't be able to understand what's going on um just like give it give it a try like all, all of your um local council proceedings should be publicly available like they should be on um the website of your local council um so you can actually have a look at um, the budgets and see what money has been spent on um, where money has come from. Um, you can have a look at the minutes of council meetings. Um, you know, as, as boring as this sounds, like you, it is worth actually seeing what um, what your council is talking about, what are their priorities, um, whose interests are they representing. Um, there's also, like the um, local, local government websites themselves generally do have the information as to how, um, how you go about standing. Um, so all the sort of bureaucratic and technocratic levers, I think, are quite um, easy to grasp once you know that they're there. Um, I think the main, and this is this is what the it's like a, a concluding section in the book concentrates on. It's like what do you do once you're there? How do you sort of argue for your ideas? Um, and the, the book kind of takes you through that as well. Um, I think, yeah, you, you need, um, I think as some, one of the respondents says in the book, like you need, especially if you're an independent counsellor, you need um, a thick skin um, and just lots of energy and, and the ability to keep at it, even if people, um, you know, patronise you or think your ideas are ridiculous or think that you're some sort of like mad revolutionary who's going to spend all the council's money on the, who knows, who knows. Um, but yeah, like if you... Once, once you get involved, I think that's the um, the key. And then look to making strategic alliances with other councillors, whether they're sort of members of your own party or, or whether they're not. Um, or even um, sort of thinking about the, the local elections coming up. There, there are 
um, the group called Flat Pack Democracy, which um, I must say I don't know a great deal about, but I know that they sort of work to coordinate people standing as independent candidates um, with a view to, I'm not sure what, what their actual platform is, but it's just like with a view to representing local people and local communities more effectively. So, you know, that might be an option as well, but it's, um, yeah, it's just about sort of immersing yourself in the bureaucracy of it, I think, and, and just seeing what routes there are for you to put your ideas forward. Yeah, I, I want to get back to your local elections in a minute, actually. But I think one of the, the interesting things is, in, uh, and again, something that you, you mentioned in the book is, you know, this is dealing with, with politics that people actually care about rather than the, the big dramas that we're hearing endlessly on the news about national governance and, and all the sort of gossip of, of, of it, you know, mm. the sort of soap opera of it all. This is the level of politics that a lot of people on day to day are affected by and are concerned with. And, and I wondered... Um, well, I mean, I suppose the big question is, you know, I, I wondered if this is a way to progress beyond the need for a national governance, if we kind of got localised areas that function for themselves. But also, I, I wonder if, you know, actually, do you need local governance to be able to pull this off? Because I know you give a couple of examples in the book which are just community led without even involvement mm -hmm. of, of the council. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're seeing um, possibly as a result of the pandemic, possibly as a result um of Brexit as well, and that that idea of sort of taking back control and sort of ever ever smaller sovereignty. Um, the Brexit is a whole other issue. Um, I, I think we are seeing a, a greater desire for local control. Um, we, we've seen this in um, sort of in increasing calls for Scottish and Welsh independence, um, things like the Northern Independence Party. So the idea of, of English regions themselves also having um, devolution. So the, I think there's definitely a sense that national central government is not really fit for purpose, like it's too remote, it's detached, it doesn't represent anyone's interests. Um, but I think you're, you're right in saying that local, if we're going to have sort of more local layers, they have to be um, powerful, like they have to be able to do something and be able to make a difference. They can't just be sort of talking shops. Um, I, mean, I suppose, um, just thinking back to the pandemic again, we can look at that for when central government works and when it, uh, when it doesn't, like the things like sort of as we said, things like track and trace, you know, were um, were dangerously mishandled. But then you can also look at the NHS having handled the national rollout of vaccines really successfully. Like the, the NHS, I think, is is perhaps the best example we've got of, of what a, a centralised state um, can do, despite all the changes um, that it's gone through. Um, though it's worth remembering that the NHS um, began as a local, um, basically a, a mutual aid society. Um, in Bevan's hometown, which is um, also my own, um, the Tredegan Medical Aid Society. So that, that was funded by um, subscriptions from members, which then made healthcare free at the point of use when they needed it. And then when Bevan became health secretary, he used that as a blueprint for a national model. So like, there's some really obvious ways that services and provision um, can be scaled up and scaled down, particularly with things like healthcare, education. Um, and one, one of the big debates about localism that's been happening on the left itself is the argument that only the state um, is, is big enough and has enough resources to effectively deliver progressive change. And I think there is there is an argument for that. Um, but the problem there, you know, is is a electoral one. And we, we've just seen in the 2019 general election, like the, the range of forces that are brought to bear against any possibility of change, even a very mild redistribution of power and resources, you know, if, if they if they threaten um, particular political interests, then um, 
you know, we, we will be crushed as, as we've, uh, as we've seen. Um, I mean, particularly, um, I don't know, one of the particularly negative uh, effects of that was that under Corbyn, Labour was um, particularly willing to engage with community wealth building at a local level, like McDonnell um, very strongly aligned himself with that. I think was looking at things like, um, you know, rolling out um, the Preston model to other areas. So, you know, it's a great shame that I, I don't think that is being carried forward. Although, um, as no Ed, Ed Miliband apparently is um, is a fan of this kind of thing as well and is, and is going to bring out a book on it. So that's, that's a scoop for you. <laughs> I, I don't know if, um, if yeah, I, I don't know like what, what potential Labour will have to uh, to take up some variant of it and we can't rely on them um, being in government anyway. So I, I think... Yeah, I mean, although I recognise the the state could be a very powerful, benevolent actor, it's hard to see that being likely in, um, you know, in in the near future. Let's say, I mean, even stuff like, um, you know, climate change. So you look at stuff like decarbonising the economy, um, cutting emissions. Obviously, the state can play a decisive role there. Um, but even then, like, it requires international consensus and coordination between governments so it's more complex than the nation state like one one state on its own acting like that is actually quite powerless um though i do and again in, in um as the book argues like localism even though it's not going to solve climate change on its own like very small communities um which do currently exist like the um the isle of egg uh in the hebrides the community there um set up, first of all set up a trust that purchased the island from its absentee landowner. So they got themselves out of this, this weird feudal um, situation um, and set up a community-owned electricity company. Um, and the island is now 95% powered by community-owned renewables. So that's an example of local organization and action being taken effectively and decisively completely outside the state. Um, so given, yeah, given, given the relative not only the the weakness but the disinterest of central government in solving really urgent problems at the moment i think localism uh, has to be the way to go yeah it's i, I loved reading about the Olive that was, that sounded so fantastic um what they did there um they've got an amazing music scene as well um there's a oh. brilliant act called pictish trail that's based there and it's, it's brilliant um but yeah it, it, it i think that was my daydream while reading your book was constantly just sort of taking things away from the government that they might break and going well if we keep them over <laughs> here you can't get near them <laughs> we'll just do it and we'll do it properly um is is it you know is there a danger that were more areas to localize and more areas to kind of um work on a system a bit like Preston, but obviously you know for their own individual needs um that the government could enforce stopping that you know can, can the government interfere in localism and, and pull things back um it can i mean it has in in the past you can look at um what, what it did i mean thatcher's battles with the um the the glc the greater london council is the first thing that springs to mind and you know they were just kind of completely crushed um Again, not sort of. I mean, when government want, want when governments want to do this, um, it's it's almost like a non-issue whether um, they're legally allowed to do it. You know, they just um, they just will. And you can look at things like uh, Lambeth and Liverpool councils in the eighties too, um, or, or even I mean, um, 
I don't know the ins and outs of the situations, but the possibility of um, central government just kind of taking over Liverpool, um, the government of Liverpool at the moment, you know, like it, uh, I think particularly the government that we've got, they won't hesitate to do things like that. And I, I think it would be um, easy to make a very bad faith argument about things like Preston, that it that it does constitute, um, you know, cronyism. Like this, I, I will stress this isn't happening at all, but like it would be easy to say, oh, isn't, isn't this just handing out contracts to your mates you know in the, the same way that, that we are criticizing the government for doing um it isn't like there's a competitive supply process and everything crucially like everything is on record and there is a paper trail and people do due diligence which uh, boris johnson doesn't i don't think anyone is whatsapping um people to um buy off bits of uh, press and infrastructure um but it would you could see how like a, a bad faith person could make these arguments against localism and yeah i i, I don't rule out the possibility of government stepping in if it becomes too successful but yeah other, other than take up arms i don't quite know what the, what the response <laughs> no, to no, that no, I, I i felt bad for asking no, because as I said, your, your book is so your book is so sort of positive as i said it, it really uh, clear as to how we can make changes apart me just thought what's the worst case scenario if, if we were to do it but uh, but i do think yeah I, I you know part of me hopes that they they never want accountability for anything so you'd almost think well fine let someone else do it they might Leave it alone. We can only hope. Um, but yeah, look, it is, it is brilliant. I, and I really recommend everyone read it just, I think, to get a, a view of how they could change things. I think even if they aren't able to or don't have the time, I think just even just being inspired to know that it is possible and we aren't powerless and there are uh, meaningful ways that we can do things. Um, and with that uh, in, in mind, you, you did mention local elections earlier and you mentioned the, the mm-hmm. Flatpak uh, democracy, but we, we've got local elections. May obviously Wales has got its uh, Senate elections and we've got the, um, mm-hmm. you know, Scot- Scotland have got uh, elections for Holyrood. Um, what should we, what should voters be looking for? You know, not, not just, uh, is it, is it, because I'm guessing it's not really party politics anymore. It's that we need to look for mm. individuals that might be key to transform their local area. What is it? Where sh- where should we be going as a starting point for for how to vote this uh, um, May the sixth? I mean, there are um, on a very small scale. I think there are principles of community wealth building that are being taken up in the political mainstream. If you look for them, I mean, there's um, I think there's a London Assembly candidate who is. Um, I mean, again, like I, I don't really fancy her chances, though she seems very interesting, but she wants to um, institute citizens assemblies um, across London and then hand all decision making power to them and abolish the post of mayor, which I, I just love as a sort of situationist um, <laughs> prank. Like I, I, she's almost certainly got my vote. Um, I think there's also, uh, just saying about Wales again on a more, um, yeah, perhaps a, a more sort of plausible level um Plaid Cymru the Welsh National Party has um said that they'll use local procurement to um deliver free school meals by using um Welsh farmers and businesses so again sounds really basic really sensible um but hasn't been done before like a, a political party hasn't made this offer um so I think it's worth looking out for um things like this on the manifestos um of all parties uh, I, I do think um I mean, obviously, I, I encourage everyone to vote, but I also think um, we need to look beyond um, relying on on a sort of political vanguard and political structures because they are uh, vulnerable to change, as, as we've just described. Like if you even if you institute like a community wealth building programme on your little council today, um, you could only have four years before you're removed from office or 
uh, before the Tory government sends the tanks in to crush you, etc. So um, it, it's helpful to look beyond um, the horizon of, of local elections, I think. I mean, the, the main the main idea behind community wealth building is a sustainable change will happen through just getting the maximum number of people involved um, at whatever level, like whatever they have the, the time and the interest for um, and empowering them in their own daily lives so they you know could could be working in a cooperative rather than working for a minimum wage job um, so I think yeah localism and electoralism can work together very well but elect elections in general I think and electoralism is a tool for further change rather than an end in itself. Cool so go out be careful with your with your vote but also also get get on the case with kind of uh doing things yourself as well i suppose yes probably probably the wisest yeah cool that's great well thank you again thank you the, the book is is brilliant it's out on may the 11th um mm. so uh one one question i've got to ask you apart from obviously everyone listening getting your book um and following you on twitter and checking out red pepper obviously um who else would you recommend that listeners follow read check out for i mean i suppose just guidance on transformative politics in, in general who, who are the people that you go to uh, um, I mean, for um, just for for coverage of um, of these things. I mean, there's um, I think the, the the usual suspects of new left media like um, Tribune, New Socialist, um, the Welsh uh, site called Voice Wales, um, which will be covering some of these current developments. And there's um, there's websites like uh, Minim, um, which is uh, like a a platform, a fairly broad platform for ideas and developments around uh, municipalism. Um, which is not exactly the same as community wealth building, but it's got more of a focus on um, like civic democracy and that kind of thing. Um, but that's very interesting for sort of analysis and ideas. Um, for practical stuff, there's um, the Democracy Collaborative website. Um, they are based in the US, but they they did coin the term community wealth building and they offer a lot of uh, toolkits. I think they're, they're called that, um, that guide you through how to actively make the arguments for transformative policies and then how to enact them. Um, and similarly in the UK, there's uh, CLES, uh, Centre for Local Economic Strategies, um, which helped develop the Preston model and they have a lot of um, toolkits as well. Um, also institutions, um, quite long established ones like Cooperatives UK and the, the Wales Cooperative Centre, which um, as you'd expect from the name, facilitates setting up um, co-ops, whether that's workers co-ops, housing co-ops, um, food co-ops and so on. Um, then there's a couple of like grassroots organisations like um, ACORN, like sort of a national national network of community organisations um, who've got branches across the UK. Um, they do a lot of work sort of tackling bad landlords, uh, low-income employers. Um, they do some really good work. Um, locality, is, again, is a similar network that can offer advice on um, setting up locally owned organisations and community asset transfers and that kind of thing. Um, I think in general, it's, it's worth just having a look it's on, on social media or, or that kind of thing, just to see what's going on in your local area, seeing whether existing groups are already set up or whether people are talking about doing something like that. Um, and the book has a list of places to start if you're interested in, um, for example, starting a co-op or looking into community asset transfers or land ownership projects, land stewardship projects, um, or any aspect of what you've read about in the book like there's sort of the, there'll, there'll be a portal to uh, to start your journey into it <laughs> 
thanks tons to Rianne for that and for her book that really uh, you should all go read by and then we'll just goddamn localise everywhere until all the government have left to be in charge of is a small square round parliament where they can screw it up as much as they like and we'll film it and people can watch it on Channel 5 and laugh and point. Sorry, I got a bit carried away. Uh, so firstly, you can find Rianne's website at rianejones.com and her Twitter is rianejones. Uh, she writes for Red Pepper magazine, which you can find and subscribe to on a pay-what-you-want basis at redpepper.org.uk and they're all on the social medias too. And of course, the book is called Paint Your Town Red by Rian and Matthew Brown and will be available from May the 11th from Repeater Books, which you can currently pre-order it from a number of good book sites, including hive.co.uk, which I've linked to in the pod blurb. Any suggestions you might have for what voices should grace this podcast, i.e. be willing to talk to this idiot about clever things, then please, please do let me know. And you can do that let knowing at Parpol Bro on Twitter, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, the contact page at partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Or you could reveal it amongst lots of other texts that you sent to mates promising them favours, but then blame a former friend for publishing them and then let them threaten to reveal more recommendations you have for the show that you don't want me to hear about because it wouldn't make sense to have them like Bernie Clifton or the man who does the Go Compare adverts and I'll just assume all your ideas are rubbish. As always, it's probably best to email, isn't it? And that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, if you manage to collect every single episode, there is no prize except sheer wisdom. Not of politics, no. Just the hindsight and understanding that you could have used that 261 hours to do something really brilliant like unlearn a language or put all the things you've ever owned into one big pile and then crawl under it and hide. Something like that. If you did do liking any of the mouth emittings that I do, then please recommend this podcast to others who may also enjoy. Review the show on a podcast hub space of your choosing. And if you are bestowed with good fortune, then hurl a pound or 12 to the Kofi Patreon or ACAR supporter sites and keep me well stocked in crisps, the renewable fuel that this show runs on. Don't ask how you renew crisps. Never, ever ask. Thanks a whole punch to Acast, my brother-in-law sceptic Cat Day and Katie Coxall. And this will be back next week when it's discovered Boris Johnson did fund the refurbishment of his flat out of his own pockets. It just so happened it was at a party where he swapped trousers with some really rich oligarchs for a laugh. Bye! This week's show is sponsored by Dyson Money Vacuums, able to suck all the cash out of public institutions within minutes and leave absolutely no trace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.